if we're fighting towards a better, healthier, more vibrant planet, we really need to start with us and that we need to be able to be well-resourced within our own minds and bodies to be effective agents in the fight for planetary health and to hopefully address climate change. Welcome to Wanna Be Greener with me, Harriet Robinson. This is a podcast where we explore ways we can all be a little bit kinder to the earth. Now, this is a brand new series, which I'm super excited about. And it's sort of by accident taken along a new theme. It's only kind of come about after I've done a few interviews. And I don't know whether this is my changing attitude or the pandemic bringing on a different way of thinking towards the planet and and the way we live. But often we talk about sustainability and how we can help the planet. And we're talking about the earth, we're talking about nature, plants and animals. But we're also going to be covering the benefit of sustainable living on ourselves and other humans. So upcoming episodes include conversations on how to feel empowered by your food choices, the benefits of growing your own produce, even inside your home, like in an apartment, and how looking after your immediate environment can have a positive effect on your mental and physical health. I'll be speaking to environmentalists from all walks of life who share their inspiring stories and give practical advice for those of us wanting to follow in their footsteps. So we're starting 2021 on a positive note and that's why this episode in particular I really wanted to be the first one of this series because in this podcast being kinder to the earth also means being kinder to yourself. Well, we know that protecting the planet can help protect our health and wellness, as mentioned. But what about the other way around? I don't do this just to um, be able to bend in a particular yoga shape or to be able to sit a certain amount of time in meditation. I do it because I want to be a better human and I want to be able to show up for the world better. We're talking about the connection between human well-being and the planet. Climate change and other environmental issues are causing huge stress and anxiety already for people all over the world. And add on top of that financial problems, family issues, work, the coronavirus pandemic and everything else, that can leave our wellness at the bottom of the pile. Loads of us want to help make a change, but how can we fight for the climate or even care that much about it if our own mind and body needs fixing first? Surely we're better at everything when we're healthy and happy. Well, the global wellness industry is valued at more than 4.2 trillion US dollars. Now, I don't know about you, but the term wellness conjures up some thoughts of spa days and massages and facials, but that's not what we're talking about here. My guest, Kayla Robertson, is a yoga teacher, producer and activist with a particular passion for the environment. She's also the founder of Moving Inward, an online platform offering courses, workshops and experiences around the topic of wellness, including mindfulness, indigenous traditions, yoga, activism and the arts. And there's a good chance you might have come across the podcast too, also called Moving Inward, hosted by Kayla. She believes that in order to be proactive and effective climate activists, and that goes from lobbying governments and going to marches to sorting our recycling properly, our well-being needs to be in check. Personally, I'm committed towards the environment and fighting climate change for the whole of my life. And so I need to be able to sustain that response for the whole of my life. Um, And what is it that allows me to do that? I really do believe in this moment it is wellness practice. 
I really think this is something that's quite overlooked. I mean, trying to be green in itself can be exhausting and stressful. Kayla's actually a friend of mine, but we've never spoken about any of this before. So I'm really grateful to her for having this honest and quite motivating conversation with me. So over the next 45 minutes or so, we cover a lot, including Kayla's own wellness journey, what practices might be best for each person and how to take the first steps towards a better well-being. Meditation is hard work and it is uncomfortable sometimes. And I think it wasn't until that I, I realized that that was part of the process, not something that was wrong with me, that it really helped me to be with it much more. We also discussed removing the stigma around the term wellness, Aboriginal traditions and how to avoid cultural appropriation. But before we get into all that, I think the important thing to find out is what the term wellness means to Kayla. I think it's a really great place to start, actually, because I think that words matter. And I think that wellness as a term has probably been overused um, and it's overused in a lot of settings and it has a lot of different meanings for different people. I think in its most barest, simplest, essential form, it's really the act of trying to be well, trying to be well in our bodies and, and in our minds and, and more broadly as well. But I think it's really important to acknowledge the role of capitalism and big businesses here because it's really become associated with the spa industry, the personal care industry. It's really been hijacked by capitalism. And so I think people can have quite strong reactions to the idea of wellness because some people think of linen bathrobes and going to a spa and getting your hair done and it feels very luxurious and very privileged and for others it can be really more about preventative health Mm. so there's really a spectrum there and it can be used in so many different ways. Okay so for you what what does it mean for you? For me it's really that preventative space it's really about trying to be well And how does that allow us to show up as our best selves? And I know that that can sound a little bit um, airy-fairy perhaps to some some people um, if you're not used to hearing that kind of language. But it's the language that I don't mind using because I really believe that it's when we're healthy and feeling vibrant and energized in our bodies that we can really bring the best quality to our activism and to our workplaces and to our relationships and to our lives. And so when I think of wellness, that's really what I'm referring to. And certainly from the position that I'll be taking throughout this conversation. Okay, cool. Well, we obviously know each other, by the way. So <laughs> when when we first met, this wasn't something that we discussed or that I remember you talking about as such. But now I know, especially from your Instagram and and your podcast and everything else, that this is a big part of your life. So was there a particular moment or something that that triggered you where you were like, actually, I really need to start considering my wellness above everything? Yeah, I think um, it's so interesting to reflect because I think we've probably known each other for what has it been, Harriet? Maybe eight years. Yeah, mm-hmm. I think that, yeah. A, lo- <laughs> a long time, and a lot, a lot can happen in in those years, particularly from your twenties to your thirties, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Um, for for me, anyway. And so, I think that I've been interested in in health for a long time, but it's really shifted quite a lot since then. So when um, when we first met, and and sort of in my early to mid twenties. I was really very active in terms of um, working towards social justice and social change. I used to work in the humanitarian sector within uh, a crisis communications role. 
And so really within within that role, I had this unique position of traveling to natural disasters and to wars um, and to longer term emergencies to lead communication projects. And so I did that work for quite a long time and I desperately wanted to see change for the people that I was working with. And the the types of issues that I was focusing on within communications were really varied. So some of them were related to climate change. Others were related to inequality and to poverty, to genocide, all sorts of things. Um, so the, the way that I wanted to see change was really different, but I really did I really believed and really looked towards those big structural inequalities that result in people having different experiences of life and how some people can thrive and some people can't. And so that was something that I was very interested in professionally at the time. But within my own life, my own health and wellness was, um, I think it's fair to say it was limited to a couple of yoga classes a week. It was limited to, uh, you know, trying to eat healthy occasionally and and not binge drink on the weekends. Mm -hmm. Um, And perhaps a more simplified version of what being healthy might look like. And I was very focused on on what my body looked like rather than how it felt to be in. And so that was how I lived my life for, for a long time. I was very much in my head and health and wellness was really about looking a certain way, um, to put it crudely. And um, within that work, so I spent quite a few years traveling all all over the world. I was in Nepal during the earthquake a couple of times. I worked on the Syria crisis. I was in Iraq. Um, I spent time in the Democratic Republic of Congo and Papua New Guinea and, and these quite stressful environments. And I was very committed to the work that I was doing and really not um, supporting my health and well-being in a way that was truly nourishing or in a way that was building my resilience. And so I suppose back then um, I thought that I was doing all the right things, but what I was unaware of at the time was the creeping impact of stress on my body and on my nervous system and on my mental health. Mm -hmm. And I'd been working with anxiety or living with anxiety for quite quite a long time and I know many of us do mm-hmm. but it was really just something that I allowed to be in the background of my experience and with time and with all of this this work that I was doing and I was pushing myself so hard and kept kind of really butting up against the boundaries of of what I thought I could do eventually I just burnt out and um it was completely unsustainable and so after quite a few years of that, I moved home to Australia. I was living in the UK while doing all of these different um, secondments. Um, so I moved back to Australia and I had to really think about why, why I couldn't hack it. A lot of the people that I'd been working with had either had really short-lived careers in that sector or had been doing it for a really long time. And I felt this enormous sense of failure that I just couldn't, I couldn't do it anymore. And so it was at looking at that and kind of considering how can I want something so much but not be able to do it um, that I really decided that I needed to have my health and well-being as a key priority in my own life, Mm. not just for myself but so that I can help others um, because it just was completely untenable, the place that that my activism put me in. Mm, Okay. And then how did you start then? Obviously you had these thoughts but where do you go from there? So a couple of things. I uh, saw a therapist, uh, not a good one, (laughs) but but I started 
<laughs> yeah, that's, that's a, a whole nother story. I eventually found a much, much better therapist, but I, I started seeing a therapist and I started going to yoga and I started to explore meditation and I did all of these things um, simultaneously. And it was more of a sense of um, really paying attention to my life and how I felt within it and what things were feeling really good and what things weren't and just taking the foot off the pedal a little bit. And so it, you know, it took a while. It took, you know, at least a good, a good 12 months or so until I really started to feel better. And it's now an absolute core part of my, my life and my habits and the way that I choose to support myself. And it's evolved along the way as well. I think the, the way you start is not necessarily the way that you're going to continue. But um, once you start, you find that there are other areas that interest you in terms of your, your well-being and it takes you on all of these different journeys. Mm. Yeah, I think it's really great that you stuck with it because I suffer from anxiety as well. And I, everyone's like, oh, you should try meditation. And I do it. And then the next day I feel OK. And so I, I don't do it. And I just do it when I feel a bit crap, which doesn't mm. I think that doesn't really work. It needs to become part of your daily life to actually have this kind of routine I suppose I don't know I guess some people are quite kind of skeptical of um you know stuff like meditation mindfulness were you ever skeptical that it was something that didn't work or was did you always kind of believe in these practices um I wouldn't say that I was skeptical but I was completely unaware of the research that supported them and so the more that I learned about yoga and mindfulness and meditation particularly the more I learned about the scientific evidence on the way that it supports our well-being. And so, you know, I think for, for people that are feeling skeptical, I think it's really important to point to the science here and, and that we're not mm. talking about necessarily chanting mantras to gods and goddesses, but we're, we're really talking about um, what has been proven as through scientific evidence. And so, for instance, mindfulness meditation can be incredibly helpful to move our nervous system from being quite active in a state of fight and flight towards the parasympathetic nervous system response, which is known as rest and digest. And so that can decrease the beat of our heart. It can help with blood flow. It can help with our healthier skin. It helps with our immune system. Um, it helps to reduce cortisol from stress in our bodies. And so it has all of these incredible qualities that it brings to our lives and it's something that really it does take a sustained meditation practice but there's also been research to show that just 10 minutes a day over a short period of time can be beneficial so I think that it is it is important to remember that but also to remember that um, a lot of what we hear about these practices is quite there's almost this narrative around it of floating on a cloud and reducing your thoughts and you're going to be happy all the time. Mm. And that's just not true. Meditation is hard work and it is uncomfortable sometimes. And I think it wasn't until that I, I realized that that was part of the process, not something that was wrong with me, that it really helped me to be with it much more. I also think that to kind of think about meditation specifically, that we often think that we need to be sitting down 45 minutes straight, no thoughts. And that's what a meditation practice should look like. There are so many different ways that you can practice mindfulness meditation within your life. And, you know, once you begin to explore them, you might find that there are some that are more helpful for you than others. So for instance, I know that um, for some people working with anxiety, that 
actually sitting with our thoughts can be really uncomfortable. And some days um, that might be something that we can work with. And sometimes that just might be completely unrealistic or unaccessible to us that day. And if that's the case, there are there are other things that you can do. Um, so I like to think of mindfulness meditation as really being present and aware to our present moment experience and that we can use the doorway of our senses to do that. And so it might be that if meditation is not possible, that you go for a mindful walk and that you walk around a park or somewhere in nature that you connect with and that you use that to really open up your senses and that you pay attention to the feeling of the wind on your skin or the sense of warmth from the sun or the feeling of the movement in your body. And that that can be meditation just as much as sitting down for 45 minutes. So there's so many different ways that we can practice it. And I think that people that are skeptical either have only come to find one particular type of practice that doesn't resonate with them, or they're butting up against that really uncomfortable process. And that's unfortunately part of the work. Okay. And I guess we're all different as well. So, you know, everybody reacts differently and everybody kind of can be treated differently differently for, for different issues. So it's not like just because one thing works for that person, it means the same thing will work for you. Absolutely. And that it's not necessarily just one thing either. Um, you know, we were talking about anxiety before. I, I know that, for instance, a lot of people are experiencing eco-anxiety at the moment. Mm. That's a completely rational feeling given the situation that we're finding ourselves in. Yeah. And that it's it wouldn't be realistic for a 10-minute meditation to ease those feelings all of the time. But what it might do is it might help you to perhaps feel better in your body and then to think about other things that you can do in your life that might be helpful, whether that is reducing your news consumption, whether that's signing up to participate in a particular group. Um, So I really think that these things are unique to us and they also need to exist within a broader holistic ecosystem. And I think there's a bit of a danger in the fact that they're often oversimplified and that's what a lot of us are hearing about. Yeah, right. Well, we'll go into a bit of details about how we can improve our well-being and our wellness. But I wanted to, obviously, this is Want to Be Greener and we talk about the environment. (laughs) Um, So people might be like, why are you not talking about that yet? But you just kind (laughs) of mentioned it. And I think we were discussing this before we um, started the podcast. But why do you believe that wellness and and having a positive well-being is important in the fight for the climate? Mm, I think personally, I subscribe to a few different reasons for this. Um, so first, when when I think of wellness and when I think of well-being, I really take great inspiration from the Aboriginal Australian understanding of well-being. And that is that it really contains four pillars. That's our mental health, our physical health, our spiritual or our emotional health, and then our planetary health. And that I think all of these things uh, are interwoven and interlinked. And the truth is, is that we we can't be healthy in our minds and our bodies unless our environment is healthy as well. But also if we're fighting towards a better, healthier, more vibrant planet, we really need to start with us and that we need to be able to be well-resourced within our own minds and bodies to be effective agents in the fight for planetary health and to hopefully address climate change. These are really big issues and we're not robots. We can't just 
do all of the things that we need to do over such a long period of time without really addressing the human element that is at the heart of that. And so, you know, if if somebody's listening and they've been tying themselves up in knots to try and reduce their plastic consumption, and then they don't have the energy at the end of the day to be able to actually be involved in politics and activism that addresses the systemic reasons for climate change, then how effective is that? That's only part of the problem. It's a really complex problem. And I think that it's only through being well-resourced and being able to increase our resilience that we're able to show up for a long time. And the truth is these issues are not going away anytime soon. I know they feel so urgent. Um, Personally, I'm committed towards the environment and fighting climate change for the whole of my life. And so I need to be able to sustain that response for the whole of my life. Um, And what is it that allows me to do that? I really do believe in this moment it is wellness practice, Mm. wellness practices. We need to get Donald Trump doing some wellness practices, I think. You mentioned Aboriginal culture and and how that's you know wellness is a big part of their upbringing it always has been it seems kind of ironic really that we see wellness as this kind of new modern thing that we all could do when actually there's communities that have been doing it for for hundreds of years and actually they're the communities also that that look after the land and look after the planet and it's important to them so it is intrinsically linked and it just seems odd that that's it's been lost somewhere and turned into, like you said, this kind of commercial spas idea, mm. rather mm. than actually this is something that some people have built into their lives and have made really important. And for some mm. reason, we we just don't recognise that. It's a, it's quite an odd thing. Yeah, here here in Australia, there's this um, resurgence of understanding and appreciating the the rich culture and knowledge of our First Nation people and that um, as one of the oldest living cultures in the world, upwards of 80,000 years, that it is wellness practices in the way that they have sustained life on the planet that has allowed them to be one of the oldest surviving cultures. And so what is that and what does that look like? And there's actually this incredible practice here called Wayapa work, which um, loosely translates to connect to country. And it's the first certified wellness practice that's based on Indigenous Australian knowledge. And um, the way that Jamie Marlu Thomas, who's the co-founder and an Aboriginal man who created this this practice with his partner, Sarah, the way that um, he likens it is, you know, to people that don't understand. uh, Imagine something like yoga, but with earth being at the the very heart of of that practice, that that is what Wayapa is. And so there is this growing appreciation for this culture and the way that Indigenous peoples connect with the land. But at the same point, it's, um, you know, I have to say that it's it's not anywhere near as far or as um, understood or revered or celebrated as as it should be. I heard a story of, of somebody from, from Europe who came to Australia and they, they were really shocked because whenever we have a, a meeting or a gathering of people here, you begin with an acknowledgement of country where you acknowledge the place that you're on. So for instance, right now, I would say, you know, I'm gathering here, or I'm speaking here on the land of the Boon Wurrung and Wurundjeri Woiwurrung people of the Kulin Nations here in West Melbourne, 
also known as NAM, and that I acknowledge and pay my respects to elders past, present and emerging and to any Indigenous or Australian, uh, any Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander peoples that are listening to this today. So that is something that is really, really important here and that this traveller from Europe was amazed that there was such reverence for for connecting to country and to connecting to the lineage of Aboriginal knowledge in, in doing that. And so I think that's something that it's a really practical way that you can begin to think about the history of the land that you're on and not only what that looks like right now, but what that looked like 10, 20, 30, however many thousands of years ago but in a way that is um, becoming increasingly important um, and part of the kind of public discourse. Mm, yeah, for sure. I mean, there's nothing like that in, in the UK. And actually, it's really nice to have that kind of respect, which we have similar things in, in New Zealand as well. Mm. Um, so we were talking about you kind of learning about wellness and starting to practice it. But then you launched Moving Inward a couple of years ago. Do you want to just tell us a little bit about that and, and why you started it? Yeah, so Moving Inward is really a, a podcast and a platform that is exploring what it means to live well, both individually and collectively. And it began originally under a different name, actually. It was originally called All Being Well, and this was uh, nearly three years ago now. And at the time, when I launched the podcast, it was really because I had this enormous interest and passion in well-being traditions and wellness practices um, and I really wasn't quite sure what to make of it or how to navigate that and so being that I'm I'm a content producer that it seemed like a really natural way of being able to create a podcast and meet these people that I really admired and to learn more about their lives and their their lifestyles and and what they were choosing to do with them and so over time, I think it's, um, it's really evolved into not only looking at what it means to live well, but also to address the barriers that we face and what, what can that look like for different populations and different groups. I'm particularly interested in racism and, and the way that um, privilege impacts our lives and our sense of wellness um, and then on the other side there's also obviously the planet and and how the degradation of the planet not only impacts us and our mental health but how can we be more effective to to be agents for change within the climate movement so it really very much centers wellness within these broader conversations of change I like to think that that's becoming more common, but I think it depends which which circles that you move in. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, personally, I'm completely disinterested in wellness practices just for my own gain. I don't do this just to um, be able to bend in a particular yoga shape or to be able to sit a certain amount of time in meditation. I do it because I want to be a better human and I want to be able to show up for the world better. And so the podcast is really about meeting people from so many different modalities to learn about how they take wellness practices into their own lives and what that equips and enables them to do. Mm. Yeah, you've had some super interesting guests and I think a lot of them have been environmentalists as well. So mm. it's not necessarily that you need to be into you know, into medicate, medication, meditation or, or mindfulness. <laughs> you could be into medication, medication too if you wanted sure. to be. Yeah. <laughs> um, 
But yeah, you know, there's so many different topics that you've covered. And it's really interesting that they've been, you know, talking about the ocean, but that has still been kind of linked to well-being because there just is that link there. Have you learned a lot since you started it? I mean, you've spoke to some really interesting people. How do you think your journey's kind of progressed since, since you started? Oh, so much, so much. I think I didn't realise it at the time, but when I started out and for a lot of my life, I think I've really approached knowledge as a fixed thing. I wanted to learn what it is that I need to do and then I'm going to do it and then that's kind of done. I can tick that box off a checklist mm. and move to another one. And I think that that is um, it's quite a Western way of thinking. And in learning about all of these different types of practices and approaches and the way that people integrate um, wellness into their lives, really what I had to acknowledge is that not only is this an evolving practice, but that it's never done. And for a while, that was really confronting, partly because, like I was talking about earlier, that the way that I was approaching it for many years um, was really unsustainable. It can be quite terrifying to think, oh my God, am I going to have to like be fighting forever? Mm. And so a lot of what I was hearing was thinking about, well, how can I do this in a way that actually not only is um, sustainable, but also quite enjoyable and really pleasurable. And so to, to talk about a particular example of that, one form of wellness practice that I'm particularly passionate and interested in is permaculture. Uh, so permaculture, for, for those that aren't familiar with it, it originated here in Australia, David Holmgren and Bill Mollison in the, in the, I think it was the 60s or the 70s, really is a form of what they were calling permanent agriculture. And it's a, it's a system, a 12-step system for caring for humans, caring for the planet and having a fair share. And so what it's often described as by David Holmgren, who I've interviewed on the show, is this quiet revolution of gardening. Mm. Because originally it was really thought of as a way of being able to grow vegetables and to, to garden. And here in Australia, everybody loves their gardens. They're quite connected to their, their veggie patch. Uh, but really it's a, it's a way of designing systems to be in a holistically healthy space by having all of these different parts that serve the whole. And so permaculture can not only be thought of as a way to garden better, but it's something that you can bring into your household, you can bring into your politics. It's something that can be applied to so many different areas within life. And what I love about permaculture is that while it's rooted in these ideas of climate change and um what David Honglen calls the energy descent future, where we kind of pass the peak oil of, of the planet's ability to be able to offer oil and that we're going to have to now face other ways of being able to consume um, the planet's limit resources. And he says that we're already well and truly in that point. While it has these these ideas of limits within the planet mm. and a sense of limits, setting limits within our lives, what is at its heart is actually a sense of joy because it's around connecting with our gardens and it's around a way of simplifying our lives to feel really vibrant and nourishing and supportive. And so from that space, I had to really think about, well, how can I sustain my activism like this? What would that look like? 
How can I make sure that it is not only supportive for me, but it's supportive for the wider world. And it's something that I can do for a really long time. And that sense of joy was definitely missing from it for a very, very long time. There was a sense of almost punishment about it. I don't know if that's something that some people can relate to. Mm. Um, Definitely for me. Yeah, I know what you mean. Yeah, and also that kind of, like you said, kind of a Western value of like we're always trying to reach a target of something, whether that's, I don't know, you know, particular success. I reached my goal. I, I did it. I completed it rather than actually just incorporating something into your daily life. Yeah, and I think I was I have been seeing, you know, stuff like um, meditating as as a chore. As yeah. like, oh, I've got to do it. But actually, mindfulness, like you said, yeah, can be things like permaculture. And it's interesting, a lot of guests that I've interviewed before who grow their own vegetables or who are self-sufficient, they talk about the amazing... Uh, benefits to your well-being from doing it Mm, and mm -hmm. often that's the the main reason they do it because it just feels so good gardening is a hundred percent a mindfulness exercise when Mm. done in a certain way unless you unless it's raining all the time (laughs) maybe that's why we don't do it in britain because it's just such bad weather i don't know i don't know why um so okay so if somebody's listening now and is thinking i'd like to improve my wellness maybe i'm interested in doing it through earth-based practices but, you know, I've never done anything like this before. Maybe I'm a little bit sceptical. Where is the best place to start, do you think? Mm, I think it's first off acknowledging that whoever is listening is completely unique and mm. what resonates with them and what is going to be supportive for them is completely unique to them. And then I think that this this way of thinking of this four-step exercise to health and wellness is actually part of the problem. And so... You know, while I'm, I'm, I can't say you should do this and this is going to change your life um, because I think that's really damaging. There are so many different things that you can try, but it really starts with somebody getting curious. And that if that is knowing that these practices can support your well-being and that there's science that proves it, fantastic. It might be that there's someone like you who has similar values or or a similar way to life and that they are interested in wellness and well-being and that you might find what resonates with them. It's really, it's different strokes for different folks. But I think finding practices and styles and teachers that resonate with you can be so helpful. So for example, um, there's this brilliant journalist uh, in the States called Dan Harris. I don't know if you know him. He's from the 10% Happier podcast. He's, he's great. So he, he basically, he had a panic attack live on air um, and it basically began his journey into health and wellness. And he at the time had real reservations around meditation because what he had heard about was that meditation will make him soft, that it will, you know, all, all of the things that we've, we've been talking about and mm. that as a journalist, the top of his game is an anchor of a, a major program on ABC that he didn't want that. He wanted to be more effective. He wanted to be clearer. He wanted to be better at his job and that he felt that meditation would take him away from that. And so he began this journey where he explored meditation practices, where he found a particular teacher that helped him to see that it would make him better at his life and better at his job. And this teacher offered the practices in a way that didn't have perhaps the spiritual 
or religious connotations that were unappealing to him. Mm. And it was through that connection that that Dan has released 10% Happier, the podcast, and it's a platform uh, and it's a book. And so for some people that are skeptical and that find that perhaps some of those more spiritual elements just really don't resonate with them, something like 10% Happier might be a really great place to start. There's also the Headspace app, uh, which is by Andy Puddicombe, another Brit. Mm-hmm. So there are so many different apps out there. And so I really encourage people to explore, to find something that they connect with. And that if some of the first few things that you try don't, don't let that dishearten you. It can take a while. And the other thing that's important to acknowledge here is that it can be really challenging. When we start anything for the first time, there's that growth period where it's really uncomfortable and it's really new and we don't quite feel like we're doing it right. Um, that's, mm. that's part of the process. I, I wish that I'd heard that earlier. For a long time, I thought that there was something really wrong with me, that I just felt really uncomfortable and I was really self-conscious. And Yeah. You do, like you do meditation and your mind just wanders through the whole thing and then you're like, did I meditate or yeah, I, am totally, I doing it wrong? I don't know. <laughs> totally. And, um, and it's the same in yoga classes. So I, I teach yoga here in Melbourne and um, I often know that some people really struggle to drop into their body. But likewise, some people find yoga really helpful if – they find meditation challenging because yoga can be a form of meditation, but it's um, really based on the sensations within your body. And so that can be something that can be really helpful as well as obviously the physical health benefits as well. Mm. So that that's what I'd recommend. Explore the apps, look at what's in your community and ask your friends, particularly if you've got a few people in your lives that are quite similar to you see what they're doing and let that be a starting place and um you'll be surprised where it might take you Mm. do you think people have started to take the idea of wellness a bit more seriously since the pandemic hit i feel like it's a bit more kind of part of the conversation these days yeah it's interesting i you know i was talking about this not that long ago to somebody because i'm aware that it can it can feel really frivolous talking about wellness in a global pandemic when there are so many awful things that are happening to so many people and yet Mm. we're not only forced to be able to simplify our outer lives and and sit with ourselves and that that can be really uncomfortable Um, But there's also a real opportunity there as well to be able to make a choice around how you want to be in the world and how you want to support yourself. And with this sense of um, many people are experiencing anxiety and stress due to a whole range of reasons. I know that here in Australia, there's a real emphasis on mental health. And so I think that that is becoming an increasingly common part of the conversation. But I think that it's going to be one of the longer term impacts that we're probably not hearing enough of now, but is the mental health crisis as a result of the pandemic. I know that Mm -hmm. we're hearing a lot about um, statistics and Lifeline, which is a, a mental health and suicide 24 hour hotline here. They had their busiest day ever on record last week. Um, oh my god! So yeah, people are people are finding it tough. So I think when we when we talk about wellness, if we're talking about health and well being and mental health, it's absolutely part of this conversation. 
if people are thinking of self-care and spas and getting some highlights in your hair, that 100% is not what we're talking about. And that that doesn't need to be a part of the conversation. Although, you know, I haven't had a haircut for eight months and it looks ridiculous, but that's (laughs) that's another tangent. No, it's good. Something you touched upon earlier was kind of that guilt you can feel, you know, if if you used a lot of plastic or something. Do you ever get that? Obviously, you focus so well on your kind of state of mind and you care about the environment a lot if you accidentally not accidentally but you know end up buying a lot of plastic one day I don't know if you do that do you get that guilty feeling and how do you deal with that if you do I do still get it but not like I used to I remember that um you know I I first went vegetarian when I was 16 um and then again when I was I think 19 or 20 Mm. um and at that time I felt like I was putting myself into this box where it had all of these different lifestyle requirements. And so I thought, okay, to be a vegetarian, I really should be aiming towards being a vegan. I can never wear or buy leather shoes. So then I stopped buying leather shoes and started looking at pleather shoes. Mm. And then they were really bad for my feet. They're really bad for the planet. So then I started looking at secondhand shoes and then they were really old and then they were bad for my feet. And I thought, what can I do? And it felt almost like this noose around my neck that I would had put myself in this really tough, tough position yeah. because I didn't want to eat meat and that I wanted to be better for the planet. But it was really, really hard to integrate into everyday life. So I don't feel like that anymore. But there's definitely times where I still have a lot of guilt. You know, just probably about two months ago, my, my partner Max and I got into a bit of an argument because we went to the local cafe and um, we had uh, – it would have been longer than two months ago now, actually. Um, we had our keep mm. cups and we, we went for a coffee. Max went in to buy the, the coffees. I was outside because you could only have one person in the cafe at the time. And he came out with a takeaway cup mm. and he said, oh, they wouldn't accept the keep cups, so I, I bought this. And I have a really firm, you know, no no disposable coffee cup kind of I don't want to say rule but I just I just don't buy them yeah. if if I can't use a keep cup I just don't have a coffee it's as simple as that and I hadn't bought a coffee like that in years and I was so shocked and I was like why did you do this so we had this this argument about this coffee and I didn't want to drink it right <laughs> and he was like you know Kayla we've we've been in lockdown for almost six months we never drive our car we, we get all of our fruit and vegetables without plastic. We're doing all of these bigger things within our lives to be able to be more self-sufficient. Um, we recently bought a house and we're working on a garden and we're doing all these different things. It's like this one coffee cup is not going to kill the planet. It was really interesting. Um, and it's something that that tension is something I've been sitting with for a long time. And it's something that gets a lot easier because the truth is is that I certainly don't live a perfect life. I I don't know about you, Harriet, but there are definitely times where I stuff up. And sometimes it's a choice that I make at the time and sometimes it's unconscious and you realize afterwards. But, you know, that's a part of being a human in a a society that has a lot of plastic and a lot of junk. I mean, it's Um, not set up for us to live sustainably. It's set up for us to buy stuff in plastic and just generally waste. We have to go like above and beyond to live more simply, which is yes. which is strange. You know, I have concerns about the emphasis on individual consumer habits within the broader 
climate change um, conversation because that's actually something that's really being peddled by big corporations because it's still good for business. And so rather than looking at the structures that are creating this sea of junk in our lives, it's actually just looking at another problem or creating a different type of problem within Mm. that kind of consumerist society. So to use an example again of the the coffee cup, right, there was this campaign a while ago for Starbucks to change their disposable cups to corn, right, Mm. because it would be better for the planet. So change one disposable item for another disposable item. And, of course, corn, when overproduced, has a whole host of problems related to environmental degradation and and climate Mm. change as well. And so instead, Starbucks and and these consumers were were calling on this change when instead what Starbucks should be doing is not having any disposable cups and we should be looking at more realistic, more long-term solutions like some sort of a reusable option. Mm. Um, So I think that um, I do try to live in a way that is aligned with my values and that that has been one of the greatest changes and most empowering changes that I've made in my life. It really feels good to be doing something positive, but I never lose sight of the fact that it is politics and the the big businesses and consumerists and this fantasy of continued economic growth. That is really the, the problem here and that I'm going to be effective if I'm working towards that as well as changing my own habits within it. Mm. I wanted to just touch upon something else you said earlier, which is maybe a little bit of a tricky question, but you talked about how you focused quite a bit on racism within moving inwards um, and practices. And I just wondered when we're talking about Indigenous practices that we're using as, well, as white women, for example, how do you deal with cultural appropriation? For example, yoga. There's quite a lot of white women that do yoga Mm. and then they say namaste and they use all these kind of terms that are kind of maybe lost a little bit. The meaning is lost maybe. Is it something you've dealt with in your practices? It's such a great question and yoga is a really good example of it. So yoga, it's a tradition that came from India and has evolved over many thousands of years. We actually don't know how old it is, but it really only expanded to the West in about the 60s. So very, very recently compared to the long history. And yet the the traditions and the pillars and the beliefs um, of that practice have morphed and evolved and shifted along with it. And there's a lot of different schools of thought as to what cultural appropriation with yoga looks like Mm. and they're both within people who are from India or Indian teachers as well as um, globally. So some belief systems around it is that um, you should know the roots of the practice and that you should know the intentions of it from those who taught it and that they should be honoured in every class. Mm -hmm. That is one, one way of 
ensuring that you're not uh, participating in cultural appropriation or that you're limiting the damage that you're doing through cultural appropriation. Mm. The other side is this other belief is through removing some of those spiritual and cultural elements, stripping them from the practice and offering it in a way that is more secular, more modern um, and reducing impact in that way. And so, for instance, in that sense, there's this big debate around the phrase namaste, which loosely translates to I see the light within you. Yeah, It's a really common phrase within yoga studios when people walk in or when they walk out. Some people feel that that phrase is, you know, it's been absolutely abused. You know, there's all sorts of names like, you know, Namaste and Negronis, for instance. <laughs> Namastream, mm. it's, it's, you know, Namasleep, yeah. all this sort of stuff. And so many Indians find that that is cultural appropriation and just really hurtful. And so some people will choose to not use the word Namaste in their classes. Others will choose to really use it knowing what it means and with full respect to the culture in which they're doing it. And I've, you know, this is something I think about a lot because I have a lot of experience working in cross-cultural settings and, and really trying to celebrate different cultures. And as a white cisgendered woman teaching an, an Indigenous or an Indian practice on Indigenous Australian land here that's unseated, there's, there's a lot of tension yeah. within that. So I think that you could, again, it's, it's kind of like the climate change stuff, right? You can tie yourself up in knots trying to do the right thing and trying not to do any harm. I think that we all have a responsibility to learn these things and to acknowledge our place within them. There's a sense of positionality there. What is my privilege? How does that relate to these issues? How can I try and be as respectful as possible? And know that that is going to harm some people but hopefully harm a lot less. And if it does, then I need to be prepared to say, I'm so sorry, that was so not my intention, but how can I do better? Mm. And so that's really the approach that that I take is trying to do the work to make sure that I'm offering these practices as responsibly as I can. And that that's really different for me compared to other teachers that are also really mindful of this space of cultural appropriation. The other thing that I think is important to acknowledge here is who's in the room. So yoga is offered in a way that um, it can be quite exclusionary. So it's in studios where perhaps price point is meaning that it it's for the privileged few. Mm. Perhaps it's um, in a way that people of diverse cultural background, including Indian, but also from other backgrounds, don't feel comfortable in those spaces or there's a range of reasons that they can't access them. Often they're taught in a way that um, privilege is ability So people that are working with injuries or disabilities or um, various other kind of physical limitations within their practice, they're not accommodated. So I think there's also the the second thing is kind of how do you teach it and, and how do you make sure that you're democratizing access to these practices as much as possible and bringing them to a wide range of people so that if somebody is hoping to access this practice that they're not facing those barriers. So it's a really complex question. I don't feel like I've done it justice there, but it's something that I consider a lot, <laughs> as I'm sure you can tell. <laughs> yeah, no, no, no. You can definitely tell you consider it. And um, actually on your website as well, I know that it's kind of pointed to as well 
I just mentioned your website there. I guess it's a good a good point to bring us to an end. If somebody wants to find out a little bit more, maybe about moving inward, I know you've got some good resources on your website as well. Is that the best place to head to? Yeah, it is. So you can find it over on the World Wide Web, movinginward.com. If you're into podcasts, I'm taking it that you are if you're listening to this conversation. Um, Anywhere that you you get your podcast from, is it's Moving Inward. And over on Instagram as well as moving.inward. In terms of those resources that you mentioned, uh, we recently released a series of practices for creating calm to acknowledge that people are experiencing quite a bit of anxiety and stress at the moment. And so that if you're looking to find, perhaps dip the toe into some of these practices, that they might be a nice place to start. There's three very different types of practices. One is a what's called yoga nidra, which is a form of yogic sleep, um, which is really lovely. There's a full body meditation and then there's a self-massage practice as well. Cool. And these are just things you can just do at home, in your bedroom, in your living room, on your own. Absolutely. No no practice or experience of yoga or meditation is necessary. Cool. I think it was quite interesting the point you made as well about kind of accessibility. I think that is also sometimes another big barrier when you think, oh, I'm going to get into yoga and then you look at the price of a course and you think, oh, my God, I can't do that, actually. And then, you know, maybe you do a YouTube course it's not quite the same and yeah there's there's a lot to consider but I think having those useful resources is is just so helpful are there any other kind of key resources or, or websites or podcasts that you think are worth checking out in terms of wellness mm, I think yeah some of those apps that that were mentioned they're 10% happier there is uh, Headspace Smiling Mind mm. is another one and for those that might like to try yoga there's also Glow Dot com, which is really great. Um, and there's so many different online practices at the moment as a result of the pandemic, which has been really exciting. Uh, but I think the main thing that I just want to say is that I know that this can feel like a really intangible element when it comes to these conversations around climate change and what we can do for the planet. But I really think it's important to challenge that because actually these practices bring a different quality to our lives and it brings a different quality to our activism and to the way that we operate within our workplaces, the conversations we have in our relationships. And so I think that if people begin to explore this, they actually might find that in really tangible, relevant ways that it helps to increase the way that they're relating to climate change. That conversation for me, honestly, was so enlightening, I guess because it's just something I'd never really considered before. So massive thanks to Kayla Robertson from Moving Inward for sharing her journey and all of her knowledge about wellness with us. If you haven't yet, head over to movinginward.com. That's her website. There's so much content on there and just connect with her through there. She'd be very happy to answer any questions you have. She's also on Instagram at Moving Inward and at Kayla Robertson as well. Uh, And if you haven't yet, subscribe to the podcast. Some, Some brilliant conversations happening over there as well. So as always, at the end of each episode, we're going to just quickly run through uh, what we've learned, what we've taken from today's conversation and how we can move forward from here. So me personally, this is what I've taken from speaking to Kayla. Wellness isn't just a new fad. Many Indigenous communities have been practicing wellness for thousands of years. 
It's time to drop the stigma. Everybody should be focusing on their own well-being. It's not selfish. We can't fight for other causes or help others if we aren't in check ourselves. So it's worth just taking the time out to focus on it and focus on ourselves. However, that doesn't mean just pampering at the spa. If that helps your well-being, then that could be an element of caring for your wellness. But there are loads of other ways that will probably help us focus our minds better and for the long term too. Everyone works differently. Some people yoga, some people it's meditation, some people prefer long walks. Find something that resonates with you. And if something you try doesn't work, don't be disheartened. Keep trying. And if it really doesn't work, try something else. But Kayla does emphasize that it's hard and uncomfortable at first, but worth persevering. Find out what your friends and people nearby are doing and use that as a starting place. And of course, there are lots of useful resources out there and loads of them are free too. Kayla just gave a bunch a shout out. Um, but of course, check out Moving Inward, which is very easily found at movinginward.com, as we've said. And as usual, there's a bit more information about the podcast and other stuff I'm up to at the moment at wannabe.greener on Instagram. Feel free to ask me any questions or send me any comments about the episode there. I hope you got something out of this one. I definitely did. And once again, a huge thank you to Kayla. And thank you very much for listening to Wannabe Greener. I'll see you next time. Bye. Bye.